0: But as I said, um, also, this is one of the messages um, which I would love to actually take and actually unpack with every single follower of Jesus Christ, and it's called, I Am the Remnant. And um, I I pray it's going to be something that changes us. And um, are you guys awake? All right? Because we're going to go through a lot. Um, So um, just giving you a heads up. If you are falling asleep right now, now's the time to actually shake yourself because we're gonna are you okay if we actually like go into some scripture and do some stuff all right are you are you okay if we're like alive and awake in church this morning yeah. all right amen i am the remnant you guys loving I'm sermon on the mount by the way it's really really cool it's challenging me like nothing else so the kingdom of God, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but we've been talking about the kingdom of God um, for, a, you know, coming up to 18 months the time I've been able to serve um, with you guys. And the kingdom of God has this concern about um, the reversal of orders in our age. When Jesus comes and Jesus speaks and Jesus declares and talks about the kingdom, he's talking about reversing some things. He's talking about reversing social orders. He's talking about reversing orders of authority. He's talking about all these different things that we love to... um, We even use terms like the upside-down kingdom or... We want to be countercultural, or we talk about like we as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, we are the authorized administrators of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth right now in 2021. You know, actually that Ryan Day. Eh? You could probably use that. <laughs> but we talk about that kind of stuff, and it sounds really exciting, doesn't it? That we imagine that we are the only authorized administrators of the kingdom of God here on earth right now. That sounds pretty cool, huh? That opens up a lot of opportunities, doesn't it? The question is, how in the world are you supposed to do that? Because if we knew how you do it, I mean, that would change everything. Well, through Scripture, especially the New Testament and in Jesus' teachings, there are actually two significant kingdom tools, um, which we are told are at our disposal if we choose to use them. The first kingdom tool is called holiness. Everyone say "Holiness." holiness. Holiness. That's a nice word, isn't it? Holiness. The second word is called justice. Everyone say justice. Holiness and justice. These are two tools at our disposal. Unfortunately, it seems that um, a lot of Christians, they either lean on one tool or the other tool, but very rarely do they take both of these kingdom tools and use them to push forward the kingdom of God and to push out the, the, the powers of darkness and evil and injustice that actually is in our present evil age. Um. These tools, they combat um, the evil in this world and they allow us to live this kingdom life which is called a proleptic kingdom life. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we would have learned over the Beatitudes um, that we live in between ages. The kingdom of God has come but the kingdom of God has not come fully, right? We look out into the world and it's a bit of deterioration, isn't there? There's still a bit of darkness. There's still a bit of meanness. And we, at the same time, we understand, we recognize that we are children of God. We, are, Our allegiance is to Jesus the King, which means that there is a kingdom which has already started. And the reality is that we are living in an overlap right now. There, Every single day we have a choice to make. Where am I going to put my faith? Will I put my faith in a world that is literally passing away or in a kingdom that is coming to pass? Every single day a follower of Jesus Christ gets to make that decision. Where am I going to put my faith today? But because we're living in a kingdom that is coming to pass, and a world that is passing away. We have the opportunity in front of us to live in a proleptic kind of way, which means that our life as the church, our life as followers of Jesus Christ, is supposed to foreshadow and anticipate the fullness of the kingdom right here, right now. So while this world is deteriorating around me, I get to live in a way that shows off and showcases the kingdom of God in its fullness right here, right now. That's what it means to live in a proleptic kind of life. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done right on earth right now that sounds pretty cool doesn't it could you imagine you're going into your worlds and there's deterioration happening around you're going into families and it's breaking down you go into communities it's going like all over the place and you step in as a redeemed son and daughter of the most high god and you know that your role your responsibility and your privilege is to actually live in this world and actually live as a showcase of foreshadowing and anticipation of the fullness of god so in the midst of deterioration you're living in this world in the fullness of the kingdom That's awesome. You should seriously be a little bit more excited about that. <laughs> one observation that Joshua Ryan Butler uh, made, I'm reading one of his books, is called Skeletons in God's Closet, which is a fantastic, fantastic um, book. Um, if you are um, a reader, I recommend that. But when he's talking about these two tools, holiness and justice, he says this, Some streams of Christianity emphasize personal morality, don't sleep around, don't get wasted, don't steal from your boss, and it should be all right. Other streams emphasize social justice, feed the hungry, stop racism, end poverty. Unfortunately, we often tend to separate these streams and overlook one over the other. Jesus confronts us by taking both of these streams and bringing them back together into a larger, rushing, raging river. We are discovering as we're going through these Beatitudes and this sermon that God is calling us and Jesus is calling us to both holiness and justice. They are two tools that we are supposed to use at the very same time. Holiness involves dealing with that spark, that poison well, that root that is inside our own hearts. Has anyone got some darkness in your heart? One person. Anyone else? Two people. Three, four. Anyone else got some darkness? You you know the absolute paradox of of becoming mature in the Lord? The more mature I become in the Lord, the longer I'm I'm walking with the Lord, the more I realize and recognize that there is a lot more work that God needs to do in my heart. You know, isn't that right? The, The further you work with God, the more you realize I'm pretty stuffed up. I actually need some redemption. I need some sanctification. I need a lot of grace and I need a lot of mercy. And a lot of times when you find Christians who are mean-spirited, they have not journeyed with the Lord to discover that their own depravity needs a lot more grace. Because if I recognize and realize I need grace, it is very easy for me to give grace. Isn't it? You ever meet someone and they don't give grace, they don't give mercy? You have to back them and say, Ah, you're not as spiritual as what you're saying right now. Because I know the longer I walk with the Lord, the more humbler I am, the more I'm just, in just, I'm just blessed of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So these tools um, which God uh, gives us, holiness and justice, these are tools that God actually gives us to fight um, hell and to actually um, bring about His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is today. But there is a third um, tool which I would add to this. And it's a tool which I think is absolutely depleted in the church right now. It's absolutely essential. It's called imagination. Imagination. I was listening to a podcast about two months ago, and this brilliant um, scholar Um, was asked a question and as she gave the answer to this question I just leapt up because like man I've been thinking about this and I actually believe this and I actually heard an academic a scholar actually say what I believed and she was asked the question her name was Karen um, Swallow Pryor she was asked the question what is the greatest vulnerability and the greatest threat of the church today and without missing a beat she simply said this the greatest vulnerability of the church today is an impoverished imagination because we live in such narrow streams of existence as the church, whilst proclaiming a kingdom that is so vast, so deep, so high, and so wide, don't we? And the reason why we, we refuse to get out of our little lane is because we have an impoverished imagination. And we don't understand, we don't recognize that our life, in order to be a faithful witness, in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, is going to require imagination, Because I've never read up until this point any scripture in the Bible where I go into it and it says, Thus saith the Lord, on the 21st of May, 2021, you're supposed to live like this. You're supposed to do this. No, we're not told that, are we? we we approach scripture like it's a mathematical equation if i do this and i do this and that's going to equal that oh my goodness my life has gone down the drain oh you know what i need to do this and i do this and i want to do this but if you ever read the beginning of the story in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth he does not give us a mathematical equation thank goodness he gives us a story doesn't he? And he says that you are going to discover meaning and relevance and, and purpose in your life, and you're going to discover who I am in the midst of a narrative, in the midst of a story, because you are story people. So, this is what happens. We read in scripture, we know how the story starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the earth was formless and void. Well, that lets me know formless and void. Maybe God's in the business of bringing form out of formlessness and filling empty things. Okay, that's how the story begins. And we come to the end of it, and we know how the story ends right? And we, and we read about what Christ has done, how we're redeemed, and we're part of this renovation project and joining with God. And in the midst of all of this, this big stage where there's a beginning and there's end, and there's little things of revelation in between, God expects us to live faithfully by improvising. There are things that we have to do. There are ways that we're going to maneuver, and it's not actually given directly in Scripture, but we're going to have to improvise our life in order to be faithful witnesses, this life, this this church needs imagination. There are different ways of doing things. There are different people groups that we need to reach. There are different ways that we can talk. There are different songs we can sing. There's differences. We don't have to live in this slipstream because we are made in the image of God, who is a creator. And when He creates things, they are multifaceted. They are multicolored. There is so much opportunity for us if we have imagination. And these words, which are so familiar that we're going to jump into today, so often for myself, because I've read the Bible a lot, yeah, I have, I get tripped up because I don't realize that when Jesus is speaking, he is opening up a door of invitation. These words that we're going to look in today, that we're going to jump in today, and the familiar words, again, it's like a part two. They are an invitation for us as followers of Jesus Christ to reimagine our role in this world as God's agents of redemption. And Jesus is going to encourage us, but for others of us in this room, he's going to get in our business. He's going to realize this is not a message for the faint-hearted, if you hear what Jesus is saying and the implications. And he's going to be asking us a couple of questions. He's going to say, are you part of my kingdom? Or are you just someone who calls himself a Christian? Because they are two completely different things. What does it mean to be sold? I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 13. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said... Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Did you get that? At no time in Jesus' thinking, in Jesus' mind, does he ever think that this faith, that this relationship with him is a private matter. There are things that we should expect to happen, not just personally, but also corporately as a church. That There are things that are going to happen to us because people look at our life and they identify, wait wait a minute, your life in your family, in your church is associated with Jesus. There is nothing private about this. There's no such thing as a private Christian. No such thing, right? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under the bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in their house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We spent a fair bit of time going through the Beatitudes, didn't we? You know, you must have been thinking, dear Lord, this is taking forever. The Beatitudes are the value system of anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They are the core foundational beliefs that every single one of us should have in common. If I was to ask you, what are your core, what, what are your core values for your life and your family? There should be a resonance because as you articulate that, I should be saying, oh, wow, that is exactly the same core values as what I have. Because that is what is outlined in the Beatitudes. That's what we have in common. All right? What happens is that when I give my allegiance to Jesus as king, a process of transformation happens. The Holy Spirit comes and he will shape and he will transform my heart to a point where I start to reflect and embody these beatitudes in greater measure. And Jesus is saying, these are the type of people that you will see in my kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice. God's justice are those who are merciful, those who are pure of heart. Purity of heart means you have a single devotion to God, that our devotion is not going all over the place, but no, I'm devoted to God. Being a person of justice means that you're a peacemaker, right? Peacemakers, when you see conflict and you see different parties, you have no problem whatsoever in standing in between and seeing if there's a possibility of making peace. That's what it means to actually administrate God's justice because we are merciful, we are pure of heart, and we are um, peacemakers. I think Luke broke that down brilliantly as he was speaking. And then there's persecution. So there are things that actually embody a follower of Jesus. And from this point, Jesus immediately starts speaking about two metaphors, salt and light. And you need to understand that these metaphors were not lost on the original hearers. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And these are two metaphors that need to be at the forefront of our minds every single time as the church of Jesus Christ. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And understand, again, Jesus is not speaking to Christians here. He's not speaking to Christians. Now, Matthew, as he's writing this, he's writing to Christians. But well, what Matthew is doing in this portion of Scripture is he is cataloguing the teachings of Jesus in a section that we call the Sermon on the Mount. But as Jesus sat down on that day or on those days and started teaching, he's not talking to Christians He's talking to this this odd group of people that was outlined elaborately in Matthew chapter 4. We talked about them, you know, like the cripples and those having seizures and those who were like needing healing. And they, they were people that were kind of pushed out from Israel. These are the ones who are following Jesus. And also, these, these people who are following Jesus, they have this hope. They are hoping that this guy, Jesus, is actually the Messiah, because they are living in a land that is being absolutely dominated by another empire, the Roman Empire. They are living in the promised land, but they are no, by no means living in the promises of God. So you need to understand that Jesus isn't talking to Christians. He's talking to this odd group of people following him, this crowd who live in Israel. Israel, generations before this moment, in the Sermon on the Mount, Israel had returned home from exile, generations previously. But there was a big thing that was hindering them. They returned home from exile, but everything around them let them know that they were still in exile, that they were still a people who were living in sin. They were being dominated by yet another empire. Have you noticed how many times Israel gets dominated by empires in their history? So many times. And even though they come out of exile, they're back in the promised land. They're still being dominated once again by another empire. And another thing which hasn't happened, they fully expected, because they know their story, they rebuild their temple... And they fully expect the Shekinah glory of God to return to the temple. So they come back from exile. They rebuild the temple. They consecrate the temple. They pray over the temple. They expect the glory of God to fall in the temple as in the days of Solomon. And guess what happens? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let's them know you're still in sin. You're still in exile. And what's worse? The last time they had a conversation with Yahweh via the prophet Malachi, didn't go so well. Mm-mm. In fact, it went really bad. <laughs> they had the audacity. They actually go to, they go to God, they go to Yahweh and say, come here. And they, 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 they go like that. you are unfaithful. You're unfaithful. Imagine saying that to God, you're unfaithful. And God says, what? You're calling me unfaithful? You are the ones who are being unfaithful. They call God unfaithful because God promised to come to his temple. And God's saying, no, 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 you're the one unfaithful. In fact, if I had to come to my temple right now, it would not go good for you at all. Instead of seeing you as family and in covenant, I would treat you as if you were an enemy because of the way you are behaving right now. No, you do not want me to come to the temple right now, but suddenly I will come. Suddenly I will come, and are you going to be ready? And that is how the Old Testament ends. And after saying that to his people, God zips his lip for 400 years. And the silence is absolutely deafening. Until one day, there's this odd guy who's dressed like Elijah, eating locusts, running around, baptizing so many people, which is odd that he gets the nickname of the baptizer. The reason why it's odd, because when you baptize someone, you're baptizing them into covenant. You're baptizing someone into community. That's what you're doing. It makes no sense that he's taking Israel who are in covenant, in community, and baptizing those who are in covenant into covenant. It doesn't make sense right? But this is causing a big stir. And all of a sudden, one particular day, he points over there and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus. And he already said, you know what, someone's coming after me and they need to increase, or I need to decrease, right? So he decrease, he decreases in that he goes to the background and Jesus increases because now he comes into the front. Now that's going to mess with some of the preaching you've heard of scriptures and that. And then Jesus comes and he starts talking about this kingdom of God, doesn't he? And people are wondering, what is going on? He starts talking about this, this kingdom of God. In fact, he goes so far and and Jesus actually announces and declares that every single prophetic promise, all of the law is fulfilled in me and it's going to be outworked in you. In Luke 4, he starts his ministry um, in in Luke 4, where he goes into the synagogue, he gets the scroll, he opens up Isaiah, and he finds a place in Isaiah 61, where he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the word to the poor. Right? In the Beatitudes, if you remember, he's stringing pearls in his first couple. Where's he pointing to? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Those two Beatitudes are throwing back to Isaiah 61. He's got Isaiah 61 in his preaching as he's starting his ministry. And he says this, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's justice. The meek, the poor, the peacemakers. And blessed are the persecuted. And from there he springboards into this metaphor of salt and light. And in particular he affirms to these people who are part of his kingdom, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Not that you have to work it up. This is who you already are. You are the salt of the earth. And at this point is where our translation gets a little bit ambiguous. The word earth used here is the same word that he uses in the Beatitude when he talks about the meek. Matthew 5 verse 5, if you remember this. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So what we've previously um, tried to explain in this series is that Jesus will very often, he will string pearls. Do you remember that term, string and pearls? He will take a line and it will point back to an entire portion of scripture in the past. You know, one easy one to remember is like, if you ever said, the Lord is my shepherd, that throws back all the way to Psalm 23, but not the first line of Psalm 23, the entire psalm, doesn't it? So what Jesus does when he's talking about um, the meek, he's thrown back to Psalm 37 verse 11. Have a look or have a listen to what Psalm 37 verse 11 says. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The confusion with our translation is that in the original language, earth and land are exactly the same word but again i want us to actually go back and imagine what kind of land are these people thinking about you are the salt of the land do you honestly think they care about australia at that stage they would even know what a kangaroo is you know what i'm saying No, no no they are interested in a particular type of land aren't they the meek will inherit the land you are the salt of the land They are living in a land where the Romans are actually dominating and occupying their land. They're very interested in getting back their land, aren't they? Really interested in that. In fact, they are living in a land that actually has this incredible word in front of it. It's called promise, the promised land. They're very interested about this promised land. They're very interested about the land. So when Jesus is talking about the meek will inherit the land, you are the salt of the land. And he's talking to this specific group of people. He's letting them know, we're talking about Israel right now. You are the salt of the land. You are the salt of Israel. You're the salt of Israel. And right now, like, like, I don't know, there's a couple of blank faces. I will get you somewhere, don't worry. And some of you are probably thinking, I thought you said Jesus is going to be hard-hitting. This is cool. Up to this point, he's just talking to Israel about their land and something about salt. Nothing to do with me. Well, yes and no. We're going to get there. Jesus is talking to Israel about being salt in their own land. Let's talk a little bit about salt. Salt was used for a whole bunch of stuff in the ancient world. Like, even with light, you use salt with light because if you get a wick of a candle, you put salt on it, it burns brighter. But predominantly, salt is used for preserving. You get some vegetation, you get some protein, you get some meat, and you put salt in it. In order for salt to be effective, though, it needs to be applied. No use having salt in the packet, you need to actually apply that salt. Isn't it interesting that whenever you use salt, salt kind of loses itself, doesn't it? You know, I love to make a good curry. I put too much salt in the curry last night. Too much salt, right? And I knew it. Andrew told me. So babe, it's too much salt. You know, us Indians like salt. Um, but whenever you put salt in a curry, it, it dissolves, it disappears. That should tell you something about our life as well, uh, when it comes to living a life of service and sacrifice. But I don't want to talk about that. But, but, but salt is only effective when it's applied. But also, salt's only effective when it's actually salty, you can't lose its saltiness. Salt actually never loses its saltiness unless you add some contaminants. Right? And if Jesus says, like, if, if, if salt loses its saltiness, all it's good for is to chuck it on their roof and people just trample upon it because that's what they used the um, contaminated salt for back in those days. So salt was this preserving agent. It stopped things from rotting. It stopped things from deteriorating. It stopped things from falling apart. So when Jesus says to this specific group of people, you are the salt of the land, the land he is talking about is Israel. And he is saying, you are the salt of Israel. In other words, he is saying to these people, you are a true remnant. A prophetic demonstration and a contrasting people in this land. You are salt. Without you, things will rot. Without you, things will start to deteriorate. In fact, your mere existence stops things from falling apart. You are salt. And again, he is not calling these people anything to to a higher calling or to a higher standard. He is very much affirming who they currently are. You are salt. These people who embody the values articulated already in the Beatitudes, these people who are the true Israel, they are a living remnant, get this, they are a living remnant, a true Israel, who reside in in the borders and the geography of a land called Israel. They are a true Israel in the midst of this land with his borders and his geography and his other people who call themselves Israel. Are you picking this up? This is what a remnant is. Because not everyone who called himself an Israelite was a true Israel. And Israel really needed some salt because Israel had been accused of many, many things. We don't like being called names, do we? What happens when God starts calling you names? What happens when God calls you a whore? Don't look at me, that's in the Bible. Right? We're far too religious these days. God does call his people names. He says, You bunch of prostitutes, you bunch of whores, you unfaithful, you are unjust, you are corrupt. Instead of being a light to the nations, you have become just like the nations, and the Old Testament ends. On such a sour note, the Israel project had failed, so now there's need for a brand new Israel, a brand new right uh, representative of Israel, and that person is Jesus. And the saving grace for Israel is that Israel has some salt, has a remnant. And the implications for the church now to get in our face are absolutely huge, wouldn't you say? We who profess to be Christians, we've given our life to Jesus. Well, if that is you and, my, and me, I profess to be a Christian, we now exist in this people group called Christians. This is where it starts to get a little bit in our face. And the implication of this verse is, and and this word that Jesus is speaking is the question are we just existing within a people group called the church called Christians or are we salt i think it's very interesting that he uses two metaphors jesus says you are the salt of the land you are the salt of israel but you are light to the world you see those two different directions You are the salt of Israel, you are light to the Gentiles. Now, don't even think about being light to the Gentiles if you can't be salt. We keep banging on about light. But don't try to be light if you're not going to be salt. And if you're going to be salt, you need to be remnant. Does that make sense? Because there is a church, but within the church there's always a remnant. And the remnant is the true church. And the purpose of salt is to stop things from deteriorating, to stop things from breaking down, to stop things from falling apart. I don't know about you, but have you ever looked at the Western church and just shaked your head and said, I have no idea what's going on right now? I do that all the time. The amount of times I've said to Andrew, I said, Baby, this is what, like, seriously, if I was not a senior pastor, I have no idea what I'd be thinking about the church right now. Because seriously, some of us are crazy. I've got my pastor friends and they're lamenting because they're young people. They've been like lured away by other churches. I'm like, are you serious? And I say to them, come come to my church. Come take as many as you want. You know, less people, less work. Take them. Take them. (laughs) This whole series started um, when I was reading a book last year by Sky Jathani, What If Jesus Was Serious? And this is what he said. What if the underlying malady affecting Christians today is that Isn't that we take Jesus too seriously but that we fail to take him seriously enough? What if much of culture's judgment of the Christians today isn't a result of obeying Jesus but the result of Christians ignoring him? The implications of the church with this message, you are salt, is huge. And I'm going to wrap up very soon. I've got so much I can say. Trust me, I've got so much I can say. But I've got two personal observations about the church today and these apply to myself too at times. And if they offend you, I'm really sorry, but these are just my two observations. Number one, what I see in the church today, in the Western church today, I see that Christians have forsaken greatness. Greatness. Greatness is not a dirty word in the kingdom of God. But Christians have forsaken greatness. And for the life of me, I don't understand why. We talk about being countercultural. We talk about living in an upside down kingdom. And if greatness is on offer, why would we forsake greatness? Later on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, James and John do an interesting thing. They get their mama to go have a chat with Jesus, right? I don't know why they did it. Maybe they, like, they were thrown back to like, the first miracle in a wedding. You know, Jesus' mum got him to do it. I'm going to get my mum. James and John, their mum goes to Jesus, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put my sons on your right hand and left hand side. Right? Greatness. The other ten disciples hear about this. They get ticked off. We read on from verse 24 of chapter 20. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers and the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you call yourself a Christian, and if you and I actually call yourself a Christian, and we indulge in consumerism and individuality individuality towards the church, we have forsaken greatness. Because greatness in the kingdom of God, greatness in the church, means that we pick up a towel and we pick up a basin and we go and wash the feet of our brothers and sisters in the house. Right? I'm not getting as many amens as I should. Maybe that's hitting your heart. But that's what greatness is. And the church has forsaken greatness. Because we want a greatness that the world has. I want to be the next big thing. I want to be the next celebrity. I want to do this. I want to do that. Come on, man. If greatness is on offer, Jesus obviously has no problem with greatness in the kingdom. But seriously, if you want some greatness, you're going to have to wash some feet. Metaphorically, I don't want you touching my feet. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've forsaken that. We really have. Second thing Christians have forsaken is faithfulness. 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 I think we get caught in a slipstream of the dehumanising structures and ideologies of this world. Two huge ideologies at the moment are the atomization of this world, which atomization is basically this. We keep on breaking things into smaller parts. That's why we have so many different tribes at the moment. You know, we have all these... The, 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 uh, maybe it's why we have so many different denominations as well. I don't know. But there's an atomization which happens and we take big things and we keep breaking it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and, smaller. and all of a sudden I belong here, I belong there, and I belong there, and I belong there. How about you just say, I belong because I'm just a human. You're just a human. And the other big ideology is personal autonomy and individuality. And this has led to an epidemic of people having no sense of meaning, no sense of purpose, and no sense of significance in their life. And you can put on a big front and you can have a chat with me, but I kid you not, I spend enough time with people and I, am just, I just see it and I lament and I try to help them with it, that there's a lack of meaning, there's a lack of purpose, there's a lack of significance. I can talk to someone in their 70s and they're saying, Dave, in fact, it was a couple of days ago, I was talking to someone in my church and he said, I don't know who I am. I don't know why I'm here doesn't matter how old you are. Matthew 6 verse 9 says this. Jesus, again later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Everyone say Father. Father. That's so familiar to us. But could you imagine calling Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, Father? Jesus gives us this covenantal name, Father. Father. The key atonement motif in the New Testament we went through this last year with Ephesians is family. We're part of a family. You know, last couple of weeks as I've been sort of studying, I've even had to change some things I've just caught in the Christian lingo, on the Christian culture. How many of us as churches where we need to build community, need to build community, need to build community? I'm like, wait a minute. My prayer is not that you would find community in this church. That's the wrong thing. My prayer is that you would find something deeper and more enriching than a community. I want you to find family. That's bigger. You can go to a footy club and get community, you can go play bingo. But where can you actually get genuine family? We even use these postmodern words like we need equality. You're equal to me. No, 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 no. There, there is like an equality in all that. But as far as like, like Dave Meddling and I, this is, this is more accurate. I belong to him and he belongs to me because we are brothers. That's so deeper. But we forsake that. So many people come to me and say, Dave, I need you to find me a friend. I need you to find community. And as a spiritual father, this should be my response. I'm not going to do that. This is what you need to do. Go and get to know your brothers and sisters. When Kayla and Jackson are like sort of going at it, Andrew and I stand back now. You need to work this out. You're, You're siblings. How do you do that? Well, we do that with the most disregarded tool that God has given us and something that you see throughout the New Testament is called the table of hospitality. How else do you get to know people? You sit around a table, you eat some great food, you drink some great wine, you you just have some great conversations and you get to know your brothers and sisters because that's what we're part of. Last Friday, I was chatting with um, a guy who I pray with every Friday morning and he said, Dave, listen to this quote. Tell me what you think. And I promise you I'm going to end. This is the quote he says, we are all born into this world with eyes that are searching for someone who is looking for us. When Kayla and Jackson were born, I remember. No one had to tell Kayla to look around for someone's eyes. She was looking. No one had to tell Kayla to adjust her hearing She was already searching for a voice. She was searching for the eyes of her mom and dad. And she was searching for the voice of her mom and dad. And every single day, you and I meet people and their eyes are still searching. Their ears are still searching. Is there someone who will look at me? Is there someone who will hear me? Is there someone who will actually call me family? We have forsaken faithfulness. Now, when I said faithfulness, oh, Dave wants us to do a whole bunch of stuff. No, I'm talking about faithfulness to be who we are called to be, family. Is that not right? It's so true, isn't it? I think it's about time we got that right. It's going to require some imagination. It's going to require some creativity. It's not necessarily going to happen. Well, you know what? This style, not going to happen so much. We're going to try a whole bunch of stuff down the hill in New Spring. And I've already told the guys, I want to have a greater expression on what the church is supposed to be. The last thing I want at New Spring is for me to go on leave, come back in August, and because of the grace of my life, because of the leadership of my life, and because I'm a pretty good communicator, the church starts to grow. We don't have any more financial problems and all these things. I do not want to actually be part of a church that is indulging in this consumeristic nature, especially if that is the antithesis of the church. What I do want to be part of is a genuine family. So we're going to fail a whole bunch of stuff but we're going to try it. And I would encourage you try some stuff. Be creative. Be family. Be great. Don't be good. If greatness is on offer why would you forsake greatness? And if we are called to be family why would you forsake faithfulness? Jesus says, you are salt. You're salt of the land. You're salt of the church. Because of you, things stop deteriorating. Things stop rotting. And things stop breaking down. And after we master being salt, then maybe we can get on to being light. But he's saying this, you are salt to Israel. You're a light to the Gentiles. I'm way out of time. I'm going to pray and we'll finish up. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, do ask just in the last couple of opportunities I have just to serve this church, that you would speak loud, that you would spark our imagination, that there will be a permission that is given to this beautiful church, that they don't have to do things the way everyone else does things, but you have given imagination, creativity, youthfulness, and wisdom of the old, all in one place, to be faithful to be a faithful witness. Holy Spirit, come and sweep through this place. We ask in the next couple of months that you would do the things that we're speaking out in faith. And in the next couple of months, we will see your faithfulness. We will see your hand move. That you will come and you will restore, you will redeem. And Father, I pray that this will be a church that is so flourishing. And after this church flourishes, I pray that she would look out and she would serve and help other churches in this state. In Jesus' name, amen.